So we're at the last week of this series that we've called Encounter. We've been talking about Exodus chapter 3 and a portion of chapter 4. And we've been journeying through how important this chapter and a half is to the story of God, what it says about God, what it says about us, what it says about our relationship to God. And through these few weeks, we've been looking at the idea that God is a paradox. He's, he's infinitely creative and powerful, and yet he shows up in the lowly and most unexpected places. We've been looking at the fact that God is intensely concerned about the suffering of people, right? He says, I've heard the cries of my people. And then he says, I've come down. But then he says, we're going to do something about this brokenness. And what does he tell Moses? So I'm sending who? You. Yeah, his brother. You're my brother. He's sending my brother. Um, uh, yes, he did. But Moses had to go too. Um, We've learned so that when God has a mission in the world, he chooses to partner with us to, uh, to accomplish it. And the most operative words in that sense are now go, right? So we're gonna wrap this series up today and I wanna unpack a little bit more of who God is, how do we go, what does going look like? But before we do that and, and as we do that, I want to revisit how we started the series. And how we started the series is I threw out this metaphor that Exodus 3 and 4 is like a trailer to the grander story of God. You remember that? Kind of had some fun with trailers. You can have a really great trailer for a really bad movie. And I want to return to that thought. Uh, and I want to suggest to you and I want to get, you, get your minds wrapped around this idea that look, trailers are an art form. It's cool to watch them. What's the point of a trailer? to get you to watch the movie, right? So you can watch the trailer, you know, as much as you want, but the, the meat and the, the essence of it is contained in the movie. Now, uh, trailers in that sense are really, really important because they should say something about the movie. And I, I kind of get geeked out about some things like this. I, I, uh, I'm always curious when a movie is really highly anticipated and then it just flops at the box office. Anybody like have a movie that you're really, really excited about and then like you're the only person in the United States that sees the movie? One of the reasons that movies fail is because of the trailers. And so when, when they'll look at the analysis, they'll say, why did such and such movie flop at the box office? They'll say, well, actually, because the trailer People couldn't figure out what the movie was about because of the trailer. And one more level, a, a predictor of when a movie is struggling is if they have to release multiple trailers that are all different because it shows that they're trying to figure out, they can't figure out how to tell people what the movie is. So if you see a, a movie that like one trailer, it looks like a, an adventure movie. One trailer looks like a romantic comedy. Uh, if you like that movie, get ready because it's probably going to be a disaster. So trailers just give you this glimpse of the bigger story. And they're important because if a trailer doesn't, isn't accurate, you get in the movie, you're like, what is this movie? And, and in that, you can take these verses in Exodus 3 and 4, and it's good to unpack them. But you also have to do it with an eye to what's the bigger story being told? What's the actual movie? Right? Let me show you how this plays out in, an, in a movie thing. Like if the, if the trailers uh, say something different about the movie than what actually the movie is, like 
Watch this and tell me if this movie is the way you remember it from the trailer. Hello, how are you? Name's Christmas, Lloyd Christmas. I'm Mary Swanson. The most beautiful woman alive. Flew to Aspen and out of my life. What the hell are we doing here, Harry? We gotta get out of this town. Yeah, you just wanna go to Aspen and find that girl, and you need me to drive you there, right? Yeah, Am I so? right? Am I right, Lord? So? You know what I'm sick and tired of, Harry? I'm sick and tired of having to eke my way through life. Sick and tired of being a nobody. But most of all, I'm sick and tired of having nobody. We're in a hole. We're just gonna have to dig ourselves out. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you ever say that again. She is the love of my life. <laughs> is that the way you remember that movie? The other option we have for this morning was uh, Silence of the Lamb uh, as, a, as a romantic comedy. So if, you, if, you, if there's a disconnect between the trailer and the story, you got to have to be aware of it. Let me show you one more example of this. Uh, this is just kind of real to me. So if I was watching a, a TV series, if you saw this line in, the, in a TV series or in a movie, everything I've ever done, I've done for my family. You would be like, man, that is a picture of model manhood and fatherhood and, and being a husband, unless it comes from Walter White of Breaking Bad. <laughs> if you don't know the story, he's a chemist, uh, not to give too much away, but doing everything for his family involves murder, lying to them, um, and becoming the kingpin of a methamphetamine uh, empire. The context matters. The bigger story matters, right? So, uh, with that in mind, we've seen for three weeks or four weeks the, the trailer parts of Exodus 3 and 4. What I want to do now is I want to walk you through the movie, the plot points of the bigger story of God, what's going on in the story. So, if you've never heard it, here's the way I would describe the grander story, the movie that we are living in. Genesis starts with uh, the creation of the world culminating with the creation of humanity. God calls us his images, his icons. We reflect him. And we do really well for about a chapter and a half. And then there's this thing called the fall. Church word. But it's really the idea that something gets twisted and broken and sideways in the world. And it has to be fixed. So instead of God scrapping everything, he says, you know what? Let's get about it. Let's get about the rescue. So Genesis 12, 12 chapters into the whole Bible, 
God makes the first grand step of rescue when he calls a guy named Abram. And he says this, Abram, I will make you into a great nation, that's God's people, and I will bless you. Abram, I will make your name great, and this is where it gets real for us today. I'll make your name great, Abraham, I'll bless you, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3 says this, I will bless those who bless you, whoever curses you I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. How many people? All the people blessed through you. So Abram's blessed by God. The, the Hebrew word there is barak. Let me hear you say barak. And the, and the results of the blessing in Hebrew are shalom. Anybody ever heard the word shalom? Sometimes it's used as a greeting. The biblical vision of shalom is a holistic peace, a contentment. Like, have you, ever, have you ever been in a space where you just felt, oh, I feel like everything is right in the world? You feel safe, you feel secure, you feel content. That's what blessed and blessing mean, and that's the result. Abram, you're blessed, but you're blessed to be a blessing. I'm gonna give you some shalom, and now you go give it to other people. Actually, how many people? All the people. All right, so Genesis 12, that's where we're at in the movie. Now, by the time we get to Exodus, there's something wrong because God has said, look, your family is gonna be the way that I bless the world. But, but where's Abram's family, If the Sunday school lesson, where's Abram's family at the opening of Exodus? They're in slavery. They're in slavery. So the, the rescue project is in jeopardy. Because God's like, look, Abram, you're the means by which I'm going to bless the world. But this family is, is enslaved by Egypt. So God says, look, I've seen their suffering. I've got to get the rescue project back under the way. I will come down. And then he tells Moses, hey, we got to fix this thing. Now go. Go to Pharaoh. Later on in Exodus God comes to dwell in the midst of his people. And it's something called the tabernacle. Here's the deal, though. The rest of the Old Testament are like adventures in missing the point. The entire rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's people journeying through the desert, getting into this land that was promised them. So the blessing that they were promised, they get. But they miss the part where they were supposed to bless other people. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament comes along. Jesus shows up. The icons are restored. If you want to know what the image of Genesis 1, when God says, hey, we're going to make humanity in our image, you want to know what that looks like? Read the Gospels. Because Jesus is the perfect icon and image of God. His love, his compassion, and then it all culminates when he dies on the cross. And when he does that, guess what? He even lives out Genesis 12. He's blessed, and then he blesses everybody else. Sets us free from sin. Everybody. How many people? All the people. 
Now, what's funny is that the rest of the New Testament is the same thing with the rest of the Old Testament in a way. Because now, after Jesus uh, is resurrected, you know what he tells everybody? Now go. Now go. The same thing that we heard in Exodus 3. There's something wrong in the world. I got to set my people free. Moses, now go. Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. Look, I've set you free. Now go. Which is kind of a bummer because most of us were like, man, if I get set free, what I really want to do is just sit down and, oh, can I just put my feet up? And Jesus is like, no, 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 there's no time for that. There's things to be fixed. Now go. So that's the story we live in. That's where we still are now today. There are things that are broken in this world. Anybody know about any things that are broken in this world? Jesus is still telling us to go. He's still telling us to go. God sees those things. He says, I've, heard, I've seen the suffering of people in the world. I've seen the suffering of the oppressed, the exploited. And I want to do something about it so people go. So what I want to do with the rest of this time is I want to read a brief story about what going looks like. Jesus tells it. And I want to tell you guys, like, this is not to give myself a pass on anything. I don't believe in passes. But I came home. We flew in from Illinois yesterday. And by the time we went to bed, I looked at my wife, Shana, and I said, hey, just so you know, I think I, I, think I scrapped my whole message. Uh, I think it's just time to kind of throw the whole thing up because of what, what's going on in the world. And I think I just got to trust God. So, so this is off, off the map for me. All right? But we're trusting God with this. So um, if you have a Bible, you want to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is an amazing, uh, amazing chapter. On one occasion, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Don't test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. How would it feel, by the way, I'm just saying, Jesus is like, good job. I'm like, that's better than a gold star. Do this and you will live. So let's stop right here for a second. Uh, this answer that he gives, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it is intensely Jewish and it is intensely right. And Jesus says, yes, that is the vision. That is the vision for how you live a Genesis 12 life, blessed to be a blessing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Sums up the 10 commandments, actually. Give to God your everything. And love everybody. Because how many people are we supposed to bless? All of them. <laughs> oh, oh, there's more. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus I know that I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Loving God is, is, should be a, somewhat of a given as a person of faith. Who's my neighbor? Where does this love stop? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a dangerous, world, a dangerous road in the ancient world. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving the man half dead. 
A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. These are church workers, essentially. That's the way it would sort of translate to us today. Holy people. So too, a Levite, when he came to the other side, came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. If you have ears to hear, you might hear a little bit of Exodus 3. God says, I've seen the suffering of my people. I've heard their cries and their growing groans. And so God says, I'm coming down. And in the same way, this guy says, I see suffering. I hear the groans. I'm crossing the road. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, his own resources, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, his resources, and he gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him, and when I will return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the bands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had Mercy. And Jesus told him, so go and do that. And if you grew up in, your, in, your, in, in the church or grew up ever went to vacation Bible school, like there's a lot to unpack in this. But this is one of these stories that, man, if you really delve into this, this is not a vacation Bible school type of story. This is a, this is a PG-13 type of story. All right? And it's appropriate for us today. The first thing I want to do is I want to point out to you the language that Jesus uses for love. For love. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind, and your strength. The Greek word is is agapao. It's where we get the word agape. Words are important in Greek because they have different words for love. There's the word eros. That means romantic love. There's there's another word for like friendship love, but agape love is a, is a Christian kind of love. It's specifically faith-based. It's self-giving. It is self-emptying. It is sacrificing yourself for the good of another person without anything expected in return. Love the Lord your God that way. And most people of faith would go, yeah, man, I get that. He's God. I should. He uses the same word for neighbor. Agapao, love your neighbor with that kind of love. So however you would describe your love for God, God, I'm willing to sacrifice anything for you. God, I'll I'll give everything to you. God, I'll give you my devotion. I'll pour out my heart to you. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. However you do that with God is how you should do that to your neighbor. Okay, that raises the stakes a little bit. There's more. Agapao in the New Testament is also used to describe God's love for us. So how does God love us? He accepts us where we are, does he not? He sacrificed himself, did he not? All the way to the cross, all the way to the shame of the cross, And God says, hey, you know how you would describe God's love for you? Self-giving, emptying, compassionate, accepting. He would say, love your neighbor that way. 
So how high are the stakes now when Jesus says, go and do likewise? It's pretty high for me. He's not done because there is something else lurking here. And it is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, let me tell you. Let me tell you a story about a Samaritan guy. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I will just tell you again who the Samaritans were to the expert in the law. They were the worst of the worst. They were the outsiders. They were the people that you do not associate with and that you look down on. They were betrayers of the faith. They were betrayers of the identity of being God's people. And so in essence, this is the way I would put it. When the guy says, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, who's your Samaritan? Who's our Samaritan? Who's my Samaritan? And then you just go down the list. All right, let's do it. Let's try it. Who is the person that is, that is really, really different from you across racial and ethnic lines? Because that's the person Jesus says you have to love with the same love. Don't give me this, Jesus is like, don't give me this devotion to God. I love you, God, I love you, God. And then treat somebody like a second-class citizen. You can't do it. You can't. He would say, okay, let's talk about socioeconomic level. The person that's different from you, that don't, they don't have enough, they don't make as much money from you. They don't dress as nice as you do. They don't have the same stuff. And, 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 and we separate ourselves sometimes for those people because they're uncomfortable to get around. Sometimes we just don't know what to do. And then sometimes we come in here and we're like, God, I give you everything and I know you love me. And God says, that's not good enough. Because it's the same love. Who's your Samaritan? How about people who might differ from you politically? Can we talk? Can we talk? There's no, there's, what Jesus is getting at, you get no pass on neighbor. You get no pass. Because Jesus would say, guess what? God made you all. You are all children of God. Nobody is less of a child of God. Never have been. Never will be. You'll never lock eyes for somebody who is not a full child of God and therefore worthy of his love, all of it. Now, last one. Hey, religiously, the Samaritans didn't worship the way the Jewish folks did. You ask the expert of religious law, they're like, hey, who's getting it wrong? Who's got the wrong God? They would say, oh, the Samaritans. And Jesus said, boy, that's funny. Because they loved this guy the way God says you're supposed to love him. And just to wrap up this part of this, this way. This is so intense for the expert in the religious law. I've said this before. When Jesus asks him at the culmination of the story, who showed mercy? What does the guy say? He can't even say the word Samaritan. He doesn't want to speak it. Who is your Samaritan? Who is the person that you would say, man, I just can't go over that line? Because God says, Jesus says, that's the person you got to go to. All right.
but. Imagine what the world would look like if we just did this. Imagine what the world would have looked like if people and leaders would say, I'm going to show the same love that I've been given to people who are hurting and oppressed and have been exploited all their lives. Can you imagine what that world would look like? I've got those lines, all right? I've got them, you know? I, I, I would like to tell you that I've never encountered a boundary about neighbor love, but it's not true. So I'm gonna tell you about some of them. A few years ago, I was at a retreat. A lot of people I didn't know were there. Actually, nobody I knew was there. There was a guy there, and he was from South Georgia, and I mean South Georgia. Neck tattoos, white guy, big, intense, loud type of person that like I get kind of, I get some anxiety about. And I judged him because I don't really have a category for like neck tattoo guys. I just, just don't. And I judged him. But I heard his story. I heard his story. I heard his story about how he was addicted to drugs and he was selling them. And then one day, Jesus got a hold of his life, turned it upside down. And I watched this man cry all weekend long with a tender, tender heart towards God. And I repented. And I walked up to that man. I looked him in the eye and I said, and I'm just being raw here. And I said, I need you to know that, that I have judged you and people like you. And I'm And I'm sorry. And God has shown me through you of how prejudiced I can be against somebody. And he embraced me and we cried like babies some more. I remember sitting with people who have different skin color than me and and, and just and, and coming to terms with the fact that I have made judgments about people. I mean, I grew up in Texas. My my, my parents are all from the South. Look, I get this. And I realized through, through conversations, man, I have, I have been guilty of bias and prejudice and made judgments against people. And then I heard their story. And I shut up and listened. And I said, God, I repent. And I've looked down on people and I've made judgments. And it's wrong because God says all the people need to be blessed. And as I wrap up, I know I'm getting long here, but some things are just important. I'm going to tell you one other story. It's on the flip side of this. I got my degree uh, uh, seminary degree. I got my master's degree a few years back. And I was in this class and we had two Two classrooms. We had a classroom in Orlando where I was. We had a classroom in Kentucky. And they were connected, you know, with the magic of the internet. And um, we could hear them and they could hear us. And it was, that's the way the class, they'd ask questions, we'd ask questions. And it was a class on ethics. And uh, there was a, a woman. 
African-American woman from Houston sitting beside me. And we got into some of this stuff. We got into some of this stuff that divides our country, that, that is the pain of our country. And she started telling some of her story and experience. And I'm just going to tell you, all right? I'm a white man, so I feel like I can say this. And I would watch my white brothers and sisters in that class repeatedly say to you, that's not your story. That's not what was happening. That's not right. You were wrong. How could you feel that way? How could you be hurt? And I watched this woman who ran a ministry, the leader of a ministry, and I watched her reduced to nothing. Bawling, weeping, and they did not stop. And I got a reminder, that's inside of me. God be praised that I have named it and tamed it. It ain't right. It ain't right. But we can lead a Genesis 12 blessed to be a blessing life, folks. Can I tell you that this church stands firmly on the ground of radical acceptance, radical compassion, radical hospitality. We invite all because I guess I'm a fundamentalist and a Bible thumper sometimes <laughs> because Jesus said we are all child of children of God and we can all go out of here. It's not going to be solved overnight but look, we know this. The government ain't going to solve it. This is going to be Jesus people that solve this. Jesus people that solve this. So, I told the first gathering, like, if you're looking for a smooth ending to this sermon, it ain't happening. But there's certain things that just have to be said. And certain times that they have to be said. And so this is one of those times. And I praise God for this community. We get so much right. And we might have to journey into this a little bit more because we're going to push back this darkness. And I'm just going to say it. I apologize for where I've failed as a leader because I probably should have said something before today. But I'm saying it now. We are blessed to be a blessing to the world and we will not stand for hatred or injustice or racism in the world. Amen? Let's stand and pray together.